Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. February is Black History Month. It's a tradition that started during the 1920s. What was the aim? To recognize Black culture and history, to honor their sacrifices and contributions, and to celebrate their joy and achievements. But it was also about acknowledging what it took to get there and how much we still need to learn. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday was in January. Around this time, we often see his quotes circulate on social media. And we also hear about his legacy as an activist and a minister and his fight for civil rights here in the U.S. But for Clarence B. Jones, Dr. King was not just a fighter for justice. He was also a friend. Jones was one of the many giants of the civil rights movement. He served as personal counsel and speechwriter for Dr. King and played a major role in drafting Dr. King's iconic I Have a Dream speech. John Henry Smith spoke with Jones earlier this year about his work in the civil rights movement, and we'll also hear about his thoughts on civil rights today. For Connecticut Public Radio, I'm John Henry Smith. What an incredible life my next guest has led. He negotiated one of Muhammad Ali's most famous fights. He did business with the likes of Harry Belafonte, the Rockefellers, and Bobby Kennedy. He's written books, started and led foundations, and most memorably, my next guest served as attorney, advisor, and friend to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. throughout the 1960s. This man both smuggled in the papers on which Dr. King wrote his iconic letter from Birmingham jail and personally wrote the first seven paragraphs of the legendary I Have a Dream speech. Dr. Clarence B. Jones, welcome to All Things Considered. What do you remember as the personal habits and attributes of Dr. King that propelled him to such an impactful life? While he was personally afraid as a human being, he had this profoundly genuine commitment in what he called his Lord Jesus Christ. And as a consequence of that, as close as we were, I could not have a rational discussion with him about what he was doing whether it was dangerous or not dangerous, or whether he should not do this, because it, it was irrelevant to him. Because he said, you can't protect me, the Attorney General can't protect me, only my Lord Jesus Christ can protect me. You know, this, this time of year, sir, we have Martin Luther King Day in January and Black History Month in February. How do you feel uh, about those commemorations? How do you think Dr. King would feel? I've always had a little cynicism about Black History Month. Because I always said now, February is the shortest month of all the months. And they assign it to Black history. So that ought to tell you something right there. Secondly, there are not enough months, not enough years, not enough decades to celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. From 1956 to April 4th, 1968, with the exception of the presidency of Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr. may have done more to achieve political, social, 
racial equality than any other person in the previous 400-year history of our country. Put it in street language and just remember that he was a bad dude. (laughs) Yes, indeed. You were recently the guest of honor of the town of Westport as they had their 18th annual Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. celebration. What's it like for you to be seen as one of the keepers of Dr. King's legacy? And, and, and do you ever feel like, hey, everybody, you know, I'm a pretty big-time lawyer. I've accomplished quite a few amazing things outside of my time with Dr. King. Would you like to ask me about that? Does that ever cross your mind? I'm in no way offended uh, or no way feel that there's a lack of appreciation of other things I've done separate and apart from Martin Luther King Jr. because quite candidly, the time I spent with him from the second week of February when I was 29 years old and he was 31 until when I was 37 and he was 39 on April 4th, 1968. Those seven and a half years were seven and a half of the most extraordinary years in a lifetime. I was very, very lucky because one, he trusted me, he respected me, and he forgave my uh, fact that I did not really know how good he was. America, regrettably, even with the passage of time from 1968 until now, still, in my opinion, has failed to take proper measure of the magnitude of just how extraordinary Martin Luther King Jr. was. Clearly, he loved America more than America loved him. But it was the magnitude of his love grounded in his unshakable faith that enabled him to overlook and to reach and try to help America twenty every day, 24-7, in spite of the fact that America 24-7 showed, on a worst-case basis, it hated him, and on a best-case basis, they tried to make him irrelevant. That was not important to him, because he was grounded in a vision and a concept, I guess best expressed the night before he was assassinated. He said, I may not be there with you, but I've been to the mountaintop and I've looked over. I've looked over the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. And I know that we as a people will get to the promised land. I mean, mean, for him to say that, knowing how he had uh, was almost killed in the 1956, 1957 Montgomery bus boycott, and knowing that every day, 24-7, at least from when I first met him, second week of February, until he was assassinated, they were trying to kill him. He was extraordinary. Sir, you you mentioned one thing a moment ago that I wanted to go back to. You talked about how um, he loved America more than America loved him. And a peculiar thing strikes me these days where you'll see people who almost certainly would not have been fans of Dr. King today, and you see these people regularly quoting the line from the I Have a Dream speech about wanting to see his children judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That makes me cute. Did you and Dr. King... Did you and Dr. King and and the other lions of the civil rights movement have a a game plan for dealing with bad actors intent on using 
no, your no, words of no, freedom no, against no. the movement? No, because he, better than me and better than most of us, he had a unshakable belief that every sinner's soul can be redeemed. So my attitude was, there's some people you just don't need to waste your time on. They're beyond redemption. He said, no, Clarence, you're wrong. There is nobody that is beyond redemption because to say that is to say it's beyond the power of God. And that there's no person who's beyond the redemption and the love of God. Sir, I want to go back very quickly to the the question of people using uh, the I have a dream quote for ends that Dr. King would oh, yeah. not agree with. You you expressed a certain feeling about that. What, what are your feelings when you hear It's at best malevolent. It's evil. It's opportunists, and they know better. It's like somebody says, uh, I'm colorblind. Well, please, you can't be colorblind. So that's, that's not the proper use of the English language. What you mean to see is not that you are colorblind. You see colors. But what you're trying to say is that when you see the color black or brown, is that you don't attach any inferior value to that. This gets me into trouble, but I'm going to say this. I had said it during my discussion at Westport, and it's not often received well. But as I look back on the history of this country and the institution of slavery, clinically, as a lawyer, clinically, I'm just looking at the evidence the overwhelming majority of white people have to be presumptively a racist person. They say, why? I said, the presumption exists until proven otherwise. Because there's no way you can live for years as a white person under generations and generations of privacy, institutional slavery, and not have inculcated in your soul a sense of superiority. There's no way it's not going gonna, gonna to happen. So I look at some of my white friends who are my dearest, closest friends, and they know how I feel. I love you, and I have loved you, but I am under no illusion. You have demonstrated to me on a an empirical basis that you have been able to overcome that presumption. But that's because I've seen what you've done, and that's because I've heard and watched what you do. But in the absence of that, without knowing that, Yes, it offends the people for me to say the mere fact that you are white in this society presumptively tells me that you're infected by racism. I'm a black man with a, a legion of close black friends, obviously, growing up in Detroit and attending Morehouse College. As we've witnessed, and I say we, my friends and I of my generation, we've witnessed pers the persistent chipping away at voting rights, at affirmative action, at and, and, and most shockingly at the social unacceptability of being openly racist in America. We have had many talks over the last decade about how jarring that is for us. And, and these matters- but how, we, jar, but how jarring what is? How jarring it is that these matters that we thought were, were in some ways dead and buried- Oh yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, there's still a reality. I got you, right. We're not dead and buried at all. I mean, so the, the, the way that you know certain elements have been chipping away systematically at the Voting Rights Act, the way that affirmative action has been pulled back, we we can yeah, it's all about it's all you, about power. You it's expected all, this. You expected this. That's right. It's all about power. Frederick Douglass said, "Power can seize nothing without a demand." The whole relationship between 
the racist and black and white is a power base. White people through the institution of slavery had power. Why do you think white people are so upset? And, 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 and so upset by all of these civil rights gains and civil rights legislation. Because anything that empowered black people reduced the power that white people had over black people. That's what it's all about. You don't have to have a PhD or be knowledgeable of artificial intelligence. All you have to do is just be able to read and remember some history of this country. That's all you got to do. If Black Lives Matter had come to you when they were first organizing and asked for your guidance in organizing you know, their movement and their infrastructure, what would you have told them? I would have told them, fine, but you can't do it alone. Black people, as, as maximum 12% of the population, you cannot do it. You want to change the condition of black lives, you got to get the power to do so. And no way that 12% of the population can get 88% of the population to do anything that they don't want to do. You've got to have the power to do so. How did your generation do it in a way that this generation's not really trying? Our key challenge was to get significant segments of the 88% of the population to come and join us. Because I used to challenge Dr. King, you can go and preach up and you can go and do handstands and you can preach the greatest sermon in the world, Martin. I said, there's no way that 12% of the population is going to get 88% of the population to do something it doesn't want to do. And that's when I began to, as I traveled around, mostly in the north, but sometime in the south, and I see white people. And I see white people at some particular demonstration, some event that we were doing. And I would ask them, I was just, I was not shy. Why? Why are you here with us? And invariably, they would say, the answer would go something like this for uh, not Dr. Jones, but Professor Jones. I'm here because I'm sure this is what my grandma or grandpa would want me to do. You see, Mr. Jones, my grandpa or grandpa. Uh, I am Jewish, they are Jewish, and they died in the Holocaust. And and they, they would say, That's, I'm doing this because I'm sure this is what they would have wanted me to do. Well, that blew my mind. I said, what? Yeah. In other words, they were saying in a nice way, you know, we respect you, Dr. King. And we are moved by some of the things you do, but don't, 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 don't you think that we're supporting you just because of who you are? No, no, we're supporting you because we want to give tribute to my grandparents. That's, that's what's beautiful to me. What do you think Dr. King would be doing today if he were uh, of sound mind? He would be working 24-7 to try to reduce gun violence. You think he would have ever run for president? Did he ever talk about uh, something like didn't that? Know. I can tell you in conversations he had no discussion about, but I know people around him, particularly white people in the uh, peace movement, wanted him to do so, but he, no, no, no. no. It wasn't no. where his head was at. Well, I'm not going to say that there are not some percentage of people who would like to have seen him a presidential candidate, but neither I or other close people around him would have wanted would have seen that. I mean, we I lived through the Jesse Jackson campaign, of course, of '88 and the Al Sharpton campaign. You know, and they were good campaigns. Mm-hmm. None of them, of course, none of them would surpass 
uh, Martin Luther King Jr. The only person that was able to carry forward the best of Martin Luther King Jr. was, uh, you know, Barack Obama. Because Barack Obama had developed a skill that, with all due respect, other black candidates like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton did not have and still do not have to this day. And that is the ability to speak to white people differently than uh, most black people talk to white people. Obama had a black father and a white mother. After his mother and father split up, he was raised by his mother, and then he was raised by his mother and his grandparents, all all of whom are white. And so Obama, contrary to any other black person, has had a history of relating to white people on a day-by-day basis in a very natural circumstance. So when he goes and talks to people at Iowa, they're going to sense it. They're going to sense that they're talking to a person, Negro or Black, but who feels so comfortable in talking to them and makes them feel so comfortable. And I say he makes them feel so comfortable because <laughs> he, he grew up in, in a household of white people who loved him. And, and so he talking to white people that he loved was no big thing to him. I've never heard that expressed, but that is very interesting. Very well, yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's why that's why I had no doubt he would win the Iowa caucus. Yeah. First of all, the white people were going to be taking it back. I said, oh, my God. We never met a, a, a black person who talked like that. Of course, they never a black person who talked like that. How many black people have that experience? Hmm. With the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, with Americans seemingly angrier and more aggressive than ever, do, do you have a message of hope for those who look at all of this and see hopelessness? My message of hope is never, 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 never give up. Why? Because anybody can walk with you in the warm sunlight of an August summer. But only a wintertime soldier walks with you at midnight in the alpine chill of winters. And I am convinced that there are generations and generations yet unborn who are wintertime soldiers. Notwithstanding, they may be born white and presumptively carry the historical virus of racism in their DNA, but they can overcome that by the power of love from people who are not white, who can extend the hand to them of love and genuine reciprocity. So I'm very hopeful about our country. What are your thoughts about the 2024 presidential election? I don't think it's a certainty that Biden will win the election. One of the principal sources of voting strength for President Biden has been the black community. And the black community, particularly under under the age of 34, has become disaffected with Biden uh, from my observation and reading and traveling around the country because of what appears to them to be the unconditional support of Israel's war uh, against Hamas. The overwhelming majority, of, including myself, of course, are opposed to the killing of Jews by these terrorists. Nobody, nobody in their right mind could even think about that. But there comes a time when, particularly if you come out of the civil rights movement, 
you have to believe that while you have to get rid of rats by applying certain chemicals of infestation, human beings are not rats. Palestinians, I am saddened, and I, I, I said this at Westport, I'm saddened that the cornerstone of the civil rights movement, for example, was the Jewish-Black alliance. The heart of the Jewish alliance has become unraveled. And it's become unraveled because I never expected that when you told me that we were going to be in alliance with you, that there would come a time that you would say, well, I love you and I support you, but my love for you is subordinate to my love for Israel. And if there comes a time when it appears that Israel is is uh, under attack, I'm not going to be able to love you the way I loved you before, because my first love now is Israel. And that, to me, is the heart of our problem with the Jewish people today. The war in Israel has developed a great crack in the Black Jewish Alliance. Dr. Clarence Jones, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, John Henry Smith. I love your name. That was John Henry Smith, host of All Things Considered on Connecticut Public, interviewing Clarence B. Jones, the former personal counsel, advisor, speechwriter, and close friend of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And coming up next, John Henry Smith joins me to talk about his interview and what civil rights means today. This is Where We Live. I'm Catherine Shen. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We just heard John Henry Smith, host of All Things Considered, here on Connecticut Public's interview with Clarence B. Jones, who's a pillar of the civil rights movement. Jones was also a personal counsel and a speechwriter to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Jones spoke about working with Dr. King, witnessing his fight for civil rights, and whether or not he saw a bigger future for himself on the political stage. Right now, we're grappling with our own present day battles for human rights, so we're looking back in history for some perspective and reflection. 
And joining us in studio for the first time, but what we hope is not the last, is John Henry Smith himself, host of All Things Considered here on Connecticut Public. John Henry, welcome to where we live today. Howdy to one of my favorite people, Kat Shen. Stop Good to be it. Here. Stop it. I'm making you blush, I can tell. Yes, absolutely. He is not lying. And also with us, with blushes, is Reverend Dr. Stephen G. Ray Jr., who's a minister of United Church on the Green in New Haven. Reverend Ray, welcome back to where we live today. So good to be with you. Very happy to be here. And so just, I want to jump straight to it. Uh, first of all, we have to put it on the record that John Henry, we love your name as well. So. <laughs> you, know, you know, the funny thing is my mom wanted to name me Maurice, but uh, my father, oh. whoever was in charge of writing that down, the birth certificate, my father got to that person first. Oh, we were going to have to talk about John, that later. John Henry Smith II got to them the first <laughs> to name John Henry Smith III. Well, we're excited, John Henry, that your name is John Henry. And <laughs> we just heard your very incredible interview with Clarence B. Jones. So I want to start with asking, you know, can you talk about some of the things that really that really spoke to you, that really jumped out to you um, when you were having this interview, interview with him? I think his comments about Dr. King's foundational belief in the power of love and faith really stuck out to me more than anything. The thought that no one is beyond redemption seems so antithetical to what most people in the world believe about those they have disagreements with. It seems more the norm, especially these days, to label people as good or bad, friend or enemy. Too many people these days forget that someone you differ with uh, or differ from or disagree with, they enjoy gardening like you do. They enjoy uh, rooting for a ball team like you do. They enjoy cookouts with their family just like you do. Uh, I had never heard Dr. King's belief in the power of love expressed in the way that Dr. Jones expressed it, and uh, I'm convinced now that it's the greatest lesson we could take from Dr. King, a lesson that you know could save the world, honestly. Really? Well, and, and on that note, because we kind of see Clarence B. Jones as somebody like, well, like we mentioned earlier, he's a, he's a lawyer, big time lawyer, activist involved in Dr. King's speech writing. I mean, that to me, what a big deal. But at the end of the day, sort of like what you're saying now, he's a human being. He was a friend. Um, well, and, and to that point, I mean, he was a, you know, he went, he, he became a lawyer and he went out to California to become an entertainment lawyer and he's living a good life out there. Big house, fast right. car. And Dr. King called on him to represent him in a tax fraud trial in Birmingham, Alabama, and he didn't want to do it. But he, then Dr. King invited him, here, invited him to hear him speak. And Clarence Jones did that, was very moved by what he heard, very reminded of all the people that helped him on the way up and said, Okay, I'm going to join because I have to do my part. Uh, he didn't have to live the live the life of substance that he did live mm. in Clarence Jones, but did, but he chose to. Well, and because of the conversation, we got a we got a gist of of of, of who Dr. King was in Clarence Jones's eyes. So when you were talking with Clarence Jones, you know, what did you pick up with in terms of what how what what who who is Clarence, Clarence B Jones as a person you know he seems very dynamic i cannot believe he's 93 years old it's amazing it's amazing they say sharp as attack and he certainly is that and more um you know i mean you look at his list of accomplishments and they are pretty astounding first african american to be named an allied member of the new york stock exchange uh, one of the negotiators who not only ended the attica standoff in 1971 but also put together the rumble in the jungle between Muhammad Ali and, and George Foreman back in 74. He was co-owner of a newspaper, the New Amsterdam News, in, in, in the early 70s. He's done so many things, and yet, I'll tell you one 
aspect about his past that really sticks out to me. When he was drafted into the Army in 1953, he, had, he was asked to sign a loyalty oath, as all people were. That was back in the Red Scare days, back when communism, the, the people were uh, on the right were throwing uh, accusations of communism mm-hmm. out at people on the left. And an accusation of communism had dire consequences for you at that time. And he refused to sign that loyalty oath and went, so basically voluntarily went to the uh, military prison in Fort Dix, New Jersey for two years uh, based on nothing but his principle Mm. that this is what he just would not, this is a line he absolutely would not cross. And I think that says a lot about the man. Well, and he was not shy to express how he feels clearly. Reverend Ray, I want to bring you in here real quick. You know, we we were talking to you, and we're we're talking to you now in the middle of February, and it's mm-hmm. it's Black History Month, like we mentioned earlier. And uh, Clarence uh, Jones remarked in his interview that he was not a fan of Black History Month. You know, does that surprise you? No, it doesn't. Um, I think that it for very many people. It's true, and I've heard it uh, my entire life. Well, what, you know, they pick the shortest month of the year, um, et cetera. But I think one of the things that we have to remember is that because of the deeply segregated nature of um, American life, there is a way in which black people, our history, our existence is so opaque to most white people that we often get a sense that they actually know more about us than they actually do, that they actually care more about us than they actually do. And it's not a a malicious kind of uncaring, but it's just a not knowing. And what having Black History Month does is that it embeds within our society a concern and a recognition of the importance of black people in a nation where most people who are not black don't know anybody who is black. Well, and, and if, if I could jump on that, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think that I, I remember, I can't remember this guy's name. I think his name was Spencer. He was the head of the alt-right a couple of years, a few years ago. Yes. He, he mm-hmm. gained a lot of uh, a lot of traction in the media. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think he said something to the effect that, you know, all things, you, you know, all of you owe a great debt to to European, Euro, European Americans for everything that you have, all the modern conveniences that we have. And you know, Benjamin Boniker designed designed uh, Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, D. I mean, you had you had uh, you you had Booker T. Washington figure out the 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 wonders of of the peanut mm-hmm. and what that and, and what that could that that could and the various uses for that. You had Garrett Morgan who who designed the gas mask mm-hmm. at the end of the day. So I mean, it, it, there were so many. There have been so many contributions, and, and and I understand that February is the shortest month of the year, but it is. I think it's 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 not a bad thing to have at least a second to recognize that, unlike what this Mr. Spencer seemed to think, mm-hmm. that there have been black people who have con- contributed greatly mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. this American susp- experiment, to humanity in general. Mm-hmm. And the key is that by having it as a national observance, it means that it's something that's embedded everywhere. So it's not like it was when the only place you learned black history was if you went to a black church. Or the only place you learn black history is if you went to a segregated school. And I think it's particularly important in these days when we're in the midst of uh, a, a white backlash, particularly in terms of education, and having some sort of commitment to ensuring that there's always a presence 
of uh, black history and uh, a black presence uh, in American educational curriculums because that's the only thing that creates a future because if we are successfully erased, then that will necessarily mean that we will have a very different future for our children and one that we would not want for them. Well, and speaking of education, also we were talking about commemorations and, and having February as Black History Month. You know, John Henry, a big part of your interview with Clarence, Clarence Jones was talking about working with Dr. King. And in an interview, he talked about he was involved with writing the first seven paragraphs of the I Have a Dream speech. But this isn't the part of a speech that really gets remembered a lot. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's interesting that the intro that Jones did write was pretty good and pretty indicative mm-hmm. of the man whose professional experience was that of a corporate lawyer and an investment mm-hmm. banker. He wrote that America's black citizens had arrived in the capital to, quote, cash a check of liberty endowed on them after emancipation. Mm-hmm. He wrote, we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. And he also mm-hmm. wrote, we refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the mm-hmm. great vaults of opportunity of this nation. All right. Pretty good stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. But... Near the dais in Washington that day was legendary gospel singer uh, Mahalia Mahalia Jackson. Jackson. That's right. My mother's favorite. I (laughs) I listened to so much Mahalia Jackson growing up. Um, At some point in King's remarks, Jackson called out to him, tell him about the dream. And that's when King went off on off the top of his head into his I have a dream remarks that have now, of course, become so iconic. Mm-hmm. And so do you think this is sort of part of our, our need to, you know, we have a lot of um, revamping of curriculum in, in black history and African-American history. And do you think this is part of that is because you know, we do see people that are familiar with the idea of this speech, but maybe not the, the actual content. And he also talked about the idea that people misuse Dr. King's speech, and he has some very strong feelings about that. So I want to ask both of you, let's go with John Henry first. You know, what do you think about that? Well, there are uh, so many examples. When you talk about guys like Newt Gingrich, when you talk about guys like Josh Hawley, uh, people on the right who would characterize much of what Dr. King stood for as woke ideology and in, in woke in the way that you know, that those folks use the term woke. It's certainly not the way you know, my family used the term woke when growing up. But uh, and yet you hear those same people every February during Martin Luther King Martin Luther King's uh, birth or any, every January at Martin Luther King's birthday uh, reciting that quote, hey, uh, we want our kids to be judged by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. And yeah, that's not to for them to use it uh, belies what I think Dr. King actually meant by it, Reverend. I think are you, are you with me on this? I think that yes, I think that um, so much of what Doc, again was well, so much of what Dr. King stood for would be considered uh, an anathema, you know, to these people. And it's not that Dr. King was saying saying don't recognize the color of my skin and recognize that there have been things like redlining and things like the GI Bill being withheld from black people that are that have been done to uh, them as a people that are because of the color of their skin. They're saying they're not saying don't recognize. They're saying don't judge us. Mm-hmm. Don't judge black people by the color of their skin. And there's and there's a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And no, I, 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 I agree with you uh, uh, significantly. There are two things, though. One is that one of the realities of our nation is that the ideas that animate us and create a future for us 
are always words and ideas that are larger than the men who speak them, right? One of the reasons why King always used civil religion as much as he did the Christian religion was because words were given to us. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, not just white men, but all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with inalienable right. I mean, those are words, and in the same way, the I have a dream speech are words that transcend time. They're words that, if we allow them to become prisoners of time, will allow people, like you just mentioned, to use them against what their intent was. So I'm always reminded that as we remember King and we remember the I Have a Dream speech, even though it's being misused now, these words are larger than the man or the time in which they were spoken. And they will always give us something that is a possible future for us. And that becomes critically important because that's the only gift you can give to the next generation, quite honestly, is the gift of the possibility of a different future. And I mean, that's the genius of black history, right? That's the genius of, of the black traditions, of the black church, of the black political movements, always giving the next generation something in which they could imagine a future better than they have today. And that's the struggle we're fighting for now because there are people who want to take that away from us. Well, and then we're talking about history. I have one more question for you, Rev. Ray, before we uh, go into break is you know, uh, Clarence Jones talked about the schism between black Jewish alliance and the civil rights movement. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think that um, the schism he's talking about comes from the fact that most um people don't recognize that the relationship that the Jews in America have to Israel is one that they are one people. Black people have a relationship with the Jewish community of America and with the state of Israel as a political reality. And one of the things that becomes problematic is that for very much of its history, the political state of Israel has been supportive of policies that black leaders in black communities have never supported. We've never supported a right-wing government that, in, in, uh, uh, that uses uh, policies that resemble apartheid if they're not apartheid. We've never supported um, governments that want to make people aliens in their own land, that want to reduce them to being simply people who live somewhere but have no citizenship. We've never supported those things. So what becomes problematic is when very many people expect us to based upon our relationship with the American Jewish community, unquestionably support the policies of the Israeli government. Because if you know anything about the governments, if you know anything about our political history, you would never expect that for one moment we would support policies or the current administration um, uh, in Israel. You've been listening to Reverend Dr. Stephen G. Ray Jr., who's a minister of United Church on the Green in New Haven, as well as John Henry Smith, who's the host of All Things Considered. We'll be back with them shortly. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're back with John Henry Smith and Reverend Dr. Stephen G. Ray Jr. We've been talking about John Henry's interview with Clarence B. Jones on All Things Considered. Jones talked about his experience working with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and also the current political climate. So I want to start with Rev. Ray um, for this conversation. You know, when we think about civil rights movement, there's this idea that it was bookended in the 70s. But the fight for civil rights, did it ever end? No, it has uh, never ended. And, uh, you know, as I was thinking about what I would say uh, as we're thinking about this question, I did an exercise in one of my classes um, on black history last year. And between the time of Reconstruction in in 1866 and today, there have only been 32 years in which our government and our society was squarely on the side of black people and our aspirations. So what that has meant is that there has never been a generation of black people who have not lived the majority of their life in anything but white backlash. And so as an answer to your question, the civil rights movement is continually alive because the history is that most black people, no matter their generation, have lived most of their lives in periods of backlash. And so as we think about the civil rights movement, it looks different and has looked different all the way back from Reconstruction until today. So the interesting thing, and this is the question about black history, is how does each generation take its cultural resources, take its lived experience, take its alliances with other communities to build sufficient political support to gain some measure of rights and privileges within our society that are durable? Right. That, that's the key word, durable and not just ephemeral. So we're looking at that in the fight for voting rights. Right. And right. You, so because you, you mentioned the next generation and I'm thinking, can your tactics in the 60s work for a country right now that's so divided and may not have a collective conscience or or is that part of the next generation sort of homework to do in terms in terms of marrying the tactics of, of history and then bring it to the present? Well, I think that the strategic vision can be the same. The tactics are different, but what we can see is that even though we don't have network TV anymore, and I mean, that was the power um, at that, that galvanized the civil rights movement was whether you looked at CBS, NBC, or ABC, you saw the uh, Alabama state troopers descending on the people on the Pettus Bridge. Well, somebody had a phone when George Floyd died. Mm-hmm. That was the power that used to be network TV. So the, so, so the challenge is how do you harness that in ways that it can bring strategic kinds of Um, uh, value. Now, part of what the problem is, is that the phones pick up instantaneous, spontaneous events, whereas at at the Edmund Pettus Bridge, for instance, the the TV cameras were there because they knew something was going to happen. They knew there was going to be, but with George Floyd, nobody knew. So the question is, how do you take these spontaneous um, uh, realities and morph them into something larger. As we saw, that's exactly what happened with George Floyd. But how do you do that in a way that it becomes part of a movement and not just sporadic events 
um, that uh, that happen occasionally. And if I can pick up on that, I think that you know the one of the cruxes of your question was, I mean, is there a is is there a decrease in general conscience, as in the ability to look to see injustice and feel guilty about it, to feel bad about it, and. Boy, I mean, there there certainly is uh, a lot of coarse language out there and a lot of uh, insensitivity, and yet and yet the reaction to George Floyd, you would think, would be something that would give you hope. That you know, people saw George Floyd, a guy laying on his stomach with a with a knee on the back of his neck, and and a, a large swath of people that crossed uh, racial lines, that crossed demographic lines, felt something. And so as long as we have that, then then there is hope for us all, hope for us all, hope for humanity. Mm-hmm. So on that, I want to ask you, you know, when you when you think about people like Clarence Jones and their work in the civil rights movement, you know, do you think we forget how many obstacles they had in their way? I mean, we're we're fighting barriers today. I think the barrier may be a little different from when he was fight when he was doing his fight. What do you think? Anything changed? <laughs> well, we got four minutes. You know, there was a he had a famous conversation. Dr. Jones talks talks about the time Dr. King came up to him and said, "You know, neither of us are going to make it to the age of fifty. Uh, they were both under constant death threats and and things to that effect. There was a there was a Harris poll out at out. He says anything changed? Interesting. There was a Harris poll in 1968 that showed 75 percent of America had a negative view of Dr. King, this person that we lionize and celebrate today, but. Most of the people surveyed in 1968 didn't like the man, didn't like what he stood for. Right. Um, I think you can probably find parallels today with people who are trying to upset the apple cart, and that's certainly what Dr. King was trying to do. So have things changed? Um, not as much, I think, as certain elements in society would like you to believe they've changed. Reverend Ray? Um, well, you know, and this has an interesting connection to talking about um, of, of the black Jewish relationship is that a part of not telling the story is dealing with the trauma of what you've come through. Right. One of the things very many of my uh, Jewish friends talk about was how it is that nobody talked about the Holocaust in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. So very many of them grew up in these households and had no clue until much, much later. And I think in some ways, when we talk about the stories of the civil rights movement, we forget how many people were killed. We forget how many churches were burned. There were over 300 churches burned from 1957 to 1965. We forget how many people had their livelihoods destroyed. We forget how many people. And so there was a kind of trauma that people went through and that that they didn't want to pass along to their children. And I think that that becomes the key. How do you pass the story and the genius of what you did without passing along the baggage? And often the fear of that leads people not to pass along the story. You want to ex- uh, expound on that, John Henry? Well, I tell you, and, and you talk about, you, you can go back even further. I mean, all the lynchings that happened between, you know, 1913, and, and I, don't, I don't have a number in front of me, but I know it was hundreds, uh, mm-hmm. if not if not more. Uh, the backlash to to black progress in, that happened in Tulsa mm-hmm. and in Rosewood, mm-hmm. uh, Lake Lanier in Georgia, a place mm-hmm. that I visited before I really knew the history of it, uh, the, in North Carolina after Reconstruction. So, um, yeah, you're... The, there was there 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 were under great peril in in this country. Certainly, uh, disenfranchised people of all faiths and, and of all creeds have 
try to rise up to to fight against it. And but again, it again at great peril. And so we shouldn't take the peril that the civil rights leaders were under right. for granted. So I'm talking to a reverend, but this is going to be challenging. But I'm going to give you 30 seconds, <laughs> Reverend Ray. You know, what do you hope our listeners get out from this conversation? Well, I hope that they get from this conversation the power of hope that was given because that was one of the last things, right? Right, that Joan said was the power of hope. And that that's the one thing. And in that regard, I'm a disciple of Jesse Jackson. You have to keep hope alive. You have to make sure it doesn't die. And that's been the witness of black history, from my perspective, is a people who have never let hope die. Same challenge to you, John Henry, as a, as a fellow host. 30 seconds. What do you hope our listeners get out from this conversation? Well, I, I, I hope one thing I hope they understand is 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 the power of the collective. I mean, uh, the famous line, and uh, guys, help me with the line, and the famous line from the letter from Birmingham jail is, in, help, in, in justice anywhere. Is a threat to justice everywhere. Is a threat everywhere. to justice everywhere. And, and if ev- everybody adopted that, then suddenly injustice would be up against, uh, up, up against it. And so if you remember that lesson, that is a good lesson for life. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to John Henry Smith, who's the host of All Things Considered. Thank you so much, John Henry, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. And also Reverend Dr. Stephen G. Ray Jr., who's the minister of the United Church on the Green New Haven. Thank you for Thank being you. with us again Thank today. Thank you for having me. Thank you both so much. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.